Well, good day, everybody, and welcome to Doc Talk. Uh, I'm Captain Jeff Monroe, the Director of Education and Standards for the International Association of Maritime and Port Executives. And with me is my wonderful uh, host, co-host, uh, Amy Andrus, of, uh, Executive Director of the uh, Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals Association. Amy, nice to have you with us again. Ah, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Beautiful day here uh, in uh, in the South, and uh, I tell you, it's uh, nice to be in better weather for a change. You know, as much as I love the state of Maine, every once in a while, it's nice to get south, visit family, and everything. So great to be here. Uh, it's been an interesting week again, and uh, we continue to watch everything that's going on. And uh, you know what I find fascinating about the movement of cargo is that we are now looking at what's happening with the National Retail Federation. What they're saying basically is that there's going to be a drop off in commodity purchases, uh, that people have built up a great deal of debt. So we're going to see that having an impact on the international container trade. But in most cases, it doesn't really affect you on the Western rivers, does it? Because your oh. cargoes are fairly steady. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. You know, and it it may not be in terms of you know shipping on the rivers, but but what's going on with the National uh, Federation? What's going on with China? If trade uh, you know starts to halt with China, you're going to have the exact same supply chain crisis that we saw during the pandemic. That affects everyone, whether you're a shipper, whether you you're in the transportation, or whether you're simply a consumer. That congestion, that crisis exploded and spread to every single mode, to every single commodity and to every single, you know, piece of the workforce. Yeah, I have to agree. And I think that in many cases, what we do is we see the commodity uh, products, you know, what's shipped in containers, automobiles, things like that, that they fluctuate with the economy, right? Whereas, you know, things like the more steady cargoes, like the dry bulk and the liquid bulk, remain relatively steady. It's it's a point we always try to make with the ports that you really want to diversify your economic mix as much as possible. Uh, and I think that if you find yourself in a situation where you're only focused on one type of trade, that it really puts you at a competitive disadvantage. Not just your not just your commodities, diversifying your portfolio within different sectors of of the river, right? So we look at you know residential, um, tourism, uh, freight, uh, uh, cargo, transload, uh, diversifying the commodities that you handle, but also diversifying the activities that either your region, your port, your terminal offers is is crucial as well. Well, the last time we had a chance to talk, we were watching the downward slide of the international container rates on all of the different routes and all the different markets. And uh, that has continued. And for the first time, it was reported out uh, this last week that uh, the average container rate for cargo moving internationally around the world is below $2,000 per 40-foot box. And I think that is consistent with what we were looking at was the overcapacity of the container slots on the international market and also sort of the softening of the economy. Even the National Retail Federation has downplayed and basically said 
uh, that they're going to be seeing less purchases in regards to just, you know, overall commodities that people have been wanting to buy. Well, one of the things that I think is going to work to our advantage now that we're seeing a decrease in cargo and also it's been projected that we're going to see an in, a decrease in the amount of cargo certainly moving across our coastal docks uh, is our opportunity to now invest in our port infrastructure. And I know you've been particularly keen on uh, the investment and the opportunity to get grants. We have a, a whole pile of new grants that have been introduced. Uh, and uh, but the deadlines are coming up quickly, aren't they? They sure are. So just yesterday, you know, Mayor, Maritime Administration, Mayor Rad, um, you know, re-released a notice of funding opportunity for the Port Infrastructure Development Program, the PIDP. Uh, the application submission date on that one is April 28th. And so I was, you know, kind of curious as to, you know, why they would re-release that. It looks like there might have been some changes um, to the definitions of, you know, for example, there's $165 million set aside specifically for, you know, those small projects. From what I can understand in looking at the new notice that was filed yesterday, it looks like the, the definition of a small project is now a small project at a small port. Whereas I think last year it was more of uh, a, just a small project, right? And so the uh, either it's an interpretation or, or maybe it was a legislative change through the National Defense Authorization Act. Something happened to where Maritime Administration is now saying uh, $165 million is set aside for small projects at small ports. So really, what does that mean? A small project defined as under $11.25 million and a small port is defined as a a facility, a public facility that handles less than 8 million tons a year. That is a huge deal for the ports and terminals on the Inland River system, because that kind of, you know, narrows down the eligible applicants so that smaller port facilities have more funds available to them. I think that's extremely valuable and, and, and very, uh, very farsighted on the part of the government to do it that way. Because as you know, most of our coastal ports who, you know, are always looking to see uh, whatever grant money they can get and for, and for good reason, obviously. Uh, but a lot of times uh, their demand uh, exceeds what makes it available through the federal grant program. So it kind of brings the smaller ports onto a level playing field. And I think the critical element here is that big ports understand how to do this. The big port authorities, right. they, they know the processes, right? I think our littler ports need to understand that, you know, a, a grant is won, all right, by the quality of the narrative that they're able to be able to talk about, you know, why this is essential to the port. Right. And they, they, they honestly, they need some help. They need some help within our industry and our stakeholders. We are desperate for grant writers. We are desperate for, you know, different, different industry stakeholders that can help us with that narrative. Most of our, our smaller ports are just so small in staff size. You know, they're, they're wearing multiple hats and doing different things within their ports and <clears throat> to dedicate the time, the resources to write a grant application, we need more grant writers. 
if you know of any, send them my way. <laughs> yeah, I think it certainly this is something that the states can take a much more uh, dramatic hand in, you know, to participate and to collectively work with the sports within the state. The other thing is, is that most of these grants really require an economic impact piece. You know, how many jobs are created? What's the overall economic impact? What is realistic? What is potentially viable as far as cargo is concerned? There's also a match component in most of these grants, you know, and of course, as most of us know, the higher the, the match that we put on the table, the better our opportunity of getting that grant is, you know, and that makes it very challenging. But the other thing to keep in mind is that the Office of Management and Budget also has a post-grant uh, system that they put in place where once the money is applied for and won, that there's some careful criteria that has to be followed. Sure, absolutely. So those, I mean, are really great uh, key aspects of what makes, you know, a grant application successful or what can help, you know, your grant application in the future. But we cannot underplay, we cannot undervalue the power of our Congress. And it's something that I desperately wanted to talk to you about today, um, Jeff, because what we just saw, you know, when we were filming our last pod podcast, you know, we were still going through the whole, you know, speaker of the House elections and and nothing could happen, right, in Congress until that was resolved. So so finally that is resolved. And we've gotten into, okay, committee assignments, the different committees within our Congress that have the legislative authority and direction um, for any type of operation and maintenance. Um, any kind of grant or funding, uh, you know, assistance programs that all goes through committee. So now we finally have our committee assignments and why I think this is so important and what makes, um, you know, the congressional aspect important to a grant application is getting the support of your congressman or your senator within your district and or your state and have their support within uh, the realm of the grant application, right? Yes, and to get in there early, because as you know, with the infrastructure grants, there are a lot of people who a lot of our DOTs, state DOTs are putting in for grant money as well for roadways and for other aspects. And the bottom line is that you find yourself within the state, part of the state is competing for roadway money and part of the state is competing for port money. So the sooner you can get to that, your delegations, the sooner you can work with your DOTs, uh, and get the message across to them that this grant is essential for them and that they need to apply for it. And also get the help. You know, a lot of our DOTs and our state economic development groups have got a lot of this information already available. You know, it's just collecting and putting it together uh, and then getting it into the application process. Uh, also, too, there's uh, more money on the table through the grant process for emissions, particularly from trucks. You know, to you know, to in essence uh, allow for the creation of of systems that would allow uh, the truck drivers to replace their aging engines and stuff, and to reduce pollution as well. So it's even within the grant process, there's competition within those elements. So the key factor, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's really about defining what you need, making sure it's ready to go, putting together a good narrative, showing the economic impact making sure you coordinate with your congressional delegation as well as with your other state departments, you know, making sure that you understand what you have to go through to get the grant, getting your getting your match and, and stuff in place. 
I think if you follow all those steps carefully, right, that your success rate of getting a grant is much better. Well, don't forget the shipper, right? Coordinating with your your political, you know, community is is crucial, right? But also coordinating with your shippers. Let your shipper, you know, the the owner of the commodity, say you're applying for a grant application to increase your throughput of fertilizer, right? Having the 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 owner, the, the shipper of the fertilizer come through with a letter of support that says Golly, if we could, if the port were able to acquire the federal funding assistance, this would increase our business by whatever, or we could increase our, our job opportunities by, you know, whatever. The, the shipper has a lot of power there, has a lot of play and influence on those grant applications too. And I, and I honestly feel like that's one of the things that is often forgotten in our grant applications. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Please don't forget to reach out as much as you can to your shippers and to the carriers that serve your port, you know, whether it be a tug and barge line, you know, or an ocean carrier, whatever. These these things are important elements to make sure that that access is in place. You know, it, it's always intriguing that sometimes Congress gets diverted. And I know there was a great deal of discussion and I'm, I'm paying particular attention now to what's happening with the sort of the congressional sense of where are we gonna move forward? And of course, as you probably are aware, uh, there have been moves in the past to affect and, and do make changes to the Jones Act. And for those of you who don't know what the Jones Act is about, uh, this is a, a protectionist piece that was put into place for the maritime industry back in the 1920s. Um, and basically it says that if you're moving passengers or freight back and forth between U.S. ports. It has to be on a U.S. built, U.S. flag, a U.S. crewed vessel. The U.S. built portion of it is kind of interesting, all right? Makes it a little bit unique because in most cases, you don't see that. But every other maritime nation in the world has this. Uh, and uh, it also extends, not the Jones Act, but similar protection extends to our aviation world, all right? So, <laughs> okay, so, so for I was example, you can't- you, like you know, we're getting used to the, the Chinese balloons, right? Are you saying that um, if if there's a, a, a change to the Jones Act that we might have Chinese flagged vessels? Tra <laughs> yeah, I just, I just want to see the, uh, you know, the very first uh, Chinese towboat going up the Mississippi <laughs> River there. I'm sure that's going to raise a few eyebrows. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the, and as I mentioned, the aviation world's got that too, because you can't fly, you know, British Airways between New York and Kansas City, for example. But what I find is bad about this is there's a lot of mis misinformation about it. So I just completed a course in, in San Juan, and it was very interesting to watch show that the discussions going on about that. They say, well, if we eliminated the Jones Act, it would make products cheaper for us down here and everything. The reality is, is that the cost of moving cargo has dropped considerably worldwide, and it's affected the Jones Act trade as well. So that really, the vast amount of money that's really being made is not by the ocean carriers or the shippers. It's being made by the middlemen, the distributors. In many cases, it's controlled by a small group of people. Uh, and those rates don't change. You know, if the Jones Act goes away, all that's going to change is that the amount of profit margin for the distributors will change. I don't want to steer you away from or distract you from the Jones Act conversation, but I am super interested in what you heard while you were in San Juan, you know, for our listeners, in incorporating, you know, the, the knowledge from the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminals Association, 
with the International Association of Maritime and Port Executives. What are you hearing in Puerto Rico, in San Juan? Is, is there uh, an opportunity for increased trade? What are the opportunities for, uh, for America and for U.S. to increase trade? Well, I have to tell you, there's no question in my mind that the Caribbean, uh, particularly the U.S. Commonwealth and the possessions down there, uh, could do a lot more business with the Inland Rivers than they're doing right now. Uh, and part of the reason I think that is because I had a chance to look at the commodity flows into Puerto Rico overall. Um, you know, they're still suffering with the aspects of what happened with Maria, you know, and the subsequent storms that came there. So the opportunity to bring cargo in, you know, by barge, you know, the, the opportunity to bring cargo in and also the opportunity to take cargo out. You know, there's a, a great deal of product that is produced in Puerto Rico, you know, and in the islands down there uh, that can go outbound as well and come into the continental United States. So there's no question in my mind that that goes on. And it, a lot of it is going on already. You know, there's a container on barge that's moved in there. You know, there's also, you know, the carriers that go into places like Jacksonville and Miami. But, you know, there's an opportunity, I think. And I think what has to happen here is that the shippers that you have, the people that you have in your membership and the people of the Caribbean need to sit down and meet and find those areas that they have in common because, they're importing LNG for their for their uh, power systems down there. They're in bringing in a lot of construction material and other products, certainly a lot of commodities and everything. So there's no question that those opportunities exist. And as I watch the ports along the Gulf Coast, and of course, I think your ports, I think that's going to be a natural avenue for them to take. Oh, I totally agree. And I'm really excited for our Gulf ports that are, are typically smaller in size. You know, we, of course, have, you know, the Port of Houston, the Port of New Orleans, and the Port of Mobile. But guess what? We also have the Port of Morgan City, Hancock County Port Authority, Pascagoula, and so on and so forth. So these smaller ports, I think, can cater to a shipper along the lines of smaller than, uh, say, a ship going into Houston, right? They can cater to those smaller shipping uh, volumes that are going into Puerto Rico and then coming back from Puerto Rico or others in the Caribbean, and they are well poised. There's obviously tons of funds, right? Pun intended, but tons of funds for any infrastructure investments that they may need to increase that that trade with the Caribbean. Yeah, I also uh, have to keep in mind that uh, it, this is not just about trade between the continental United States and the islands. I mean, a lot of these ports service also areas in South and Central America. San Juan, for example, you know, brings in cargo from Algeciras and Spain, you know, and other parts of Europe and uh, Africa. So there are a lot of potential opportunities there. And, and again, I think, you know, if people are really interested in doing business, you know, between our members, it can help them do that to find the right connections. You know, in the past, we've those. taken in the past we've taken a delegation down to uh, Panama in Central America. Maybe it's time to to take a delegation down to you know the Caribbean and and start these useful conversations. Well, I have to tell you the hospitality in Puerto Rico, uh, not only in San Juan but the wonderful people from Ponce was absolutely wonderful. I'm sure they'd be more than thrilled to talk about it. And, you know, the nice thing about it is that, uh, you know, things are not as challenging as they were 
particularly now that the Federal Maritime Commission is looking at a whole different set of rules and regulations that really benefit shippers. Um, you know, and in the long run, it had, they have made the process so much simpler, you know, where you used to have to have your attorney bring in a complaint, hand deliver it to the FMC and DC and stuff. Now, all we have to do is an email, have the proper documentation connected with it. Do you know that the FMC has seen over $700,000 in return fees uh, to shippers? because they have uh, resulted in detention and demurrage charges that were unwarranted. And this is such a controversial you know, discussion. I hear you in your perspective uh, regarding these FMC you know, kind of um, guidelines, right? This expanded regulate, regulatory arm now of FMC, almost kind of in a, in a positive tone, right? That they're making it easier uh, for shippers um, to uh, to to bring forth some of their concerns, our colleague Joanne, which I hope we, I hope we can attract her to join us on a podcast, brings a totally different perspective to that conversation and more so in tone. Um, so I I would love to bring her in at some point uh, because I think she brings more of um, what that what those expanded regulatory aspects mean to the actual transload facilities to the marine terminal operators and to those ports so um so controversial but you're putting a good spin on it <laughs> well you know but it's incumbent as i've often pointed out you know marine facilities are part of an international system both your your facilities on the domestic side as well as the international side and it's really incumbent upon us as port and terminal operators to make sure that we're efficient and the bottom line, if we're causing people to incur costs because we can't get them out the gate because we have excessive dwell times and stuff like that, well, then shame on us. We need to fix that. All right. So we certainly see that, you know, in many cases, some of this is a knee jerk reaction. Uh, but the reality in all of this is that it has also benefited the carriers for many, many years by making the whole complaint process very complex. And I think now that it's simplified, it'll work its way out, you know. And of course, you know, the FMC, what goes on with the FMC doesn't really impact a lot of your shippers on the Western rivers because they're mostly handling domestic cargo. But a lot of your members are also handling international cargo. And that's something so, that they have and, to be aware of. And so you're right about that. And and I think for our listeners' benefit, you know, what's um, not necessarily crazy about that. But what's ironic about that is we can have, say, a port or a terminal in St. Louis that is, you know, shipping our soybeans and grains out internationally, right? That cargo is an international cargo, but because it's originating, say, in St. Louis and it's transloading maybe in, in you know, South Louisiana, at the port of South Louisiana, it's considered domestic cargo, right? The, the international por portion and the international shipping aspect of it would be port of South Louisiana, to that other country. So it's just kind of exactly. ironic. <laughs> and it, it will have an impact, obviously. And I'm gonna be interested in seeing what happens now that things have kind of changed around. You know, for a number of years, uh, the Port of South Louisiana was the largest tonnage port in Western hemisphere. Uh, and then during COVID, a lot of things have had cut back and stuff like that. And Houston took the reins, you know, as the largest tonnage port. Uh, and now I'm gonna be interested in see if South Louisiana gets that back. They have a, a great new director there. And, yeah, we're coming uh, back with Paul's leadership. We're coming back. 
Yeah, so it's going to be fast. I'd like to see that again uh, as as it comes to fruition. So, well, there's certainly a lot of things going on on a regular basis uh, that impact uh, both the international and the domestic world. You know, as I pointed out in our last conversation, that international cargo takes a huge amount of attention of the public, but it only represents 10 to 12 percent of all the cargo that moves within the United States. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens and uh, as we continue to look at and continue to report on it, I think it'll be very valuable to those who listen to the, our podcast to understand at least what's happening. So I think the, leave, the things that we can leave with folks for right now is the biggest focus, I think, is, is the grant program. And I have to give them a great deal of uh, credit what's happening let's hope that it doesn't get gummed up you know in congress not to say that congress gums things up at all right <laughs> but let's uh let's hope that all of this is going to work but if if you're planning on on putting in for a grant small port big port doesn't make any difference all right if you're planning and putting in a grant you need to be moving right away you need yeah. to get under that deadline of april 28th you need to get your narrative, your economic impact. You need to, you know, have somebody help you with it as necessary. And I know we have a shortage of grant writers and stuff, you know, and need to understand, you know, whatever we can put into it is going to give us a better opportunity, uh, you know, in the match portion of it, you know, to to succeed. And talk to your shippers, as you say, Amy, talk to your congressional delegation, talk to your folks, talk to your states. So they're not you're not competing within your own state. We've got a really great graphic uh, with within the association that we're really focusing on this year, and it's the stakeholder graphic that without our our congressional delegation, without our state agencies, without our barge lines and the ports and the terminals and the workforce and the shippers, it's all about the movement of freight and the shipper. And I think we we sometimes get lost in our part of the graphic are part of, of the schematic that we we can lose focus on all of those different aspects that do have to come together uh, for a, a successful um, supply chain, right? And there I go, there it is. It's a successful supply chain. That should be our goal. And so, you know, bringing in all of the stakeholders that are needed for that success, I think is going to be crucial. And especially paying paying attention to our new Congress, our 118th Congress, you know, we cannot undervalue um, who the, the role that they play in our supply chain. Well, I have to tell you, you know, it's incumbent upon us to make sure we not only educate the public, but also make every effort to educate our congressional delegations. I, I was always very fortunate to get in on a regular opportunity to see Senator Collins, Senator Snow when she was still the senator, and now Senator King, you know, and uh, they take the time to listen because this is an important topic for all of us. And it's our responsibility, our responsibility as individual ports and terminal operators to make sure that we get in, knock on their doors, and bring them the data. And if people need data, that data is readily available through us, through you, you know, we can help you, you know, bring that information forward. Absolutely. So, and I think that it's it's very important. And and I think really we should do like an entire podcast on, you know, the congressional aspect of this. But what I'd like our listeners to remember and what I can consistently tell our members, you know, 
please never go into a congressional office with only challenges. Present your potential solutions. You know, here's my challenge. And I think if we could do X, Y, or Z, you know, help them help you, right? And lean on your associations in order to bring forth those solutions. I absolutely, that, there's great wisdom in that because, you know, in the, in the long run here, we nobody knows the industry better than we do, right? Let's help them understand what they need to do. Well, I think you're so kind. Um, it, it takes a village, right? <laughs> it takes a village, absolutely. And and the fact of the matter is, is that we come to recognize in the course of time that the domestic and international side uh, works very carefully together. As I've often said in my courses, right, that if, if, if New York sneezes, right, Kansas City will catch a cold, you know. So the reality is, is that we all have to think systematically. We all need to come to understand that all of the supply chain problems that we faced, right, that seem to have now settled out and only because the volumes have decreased, right, that they'll come up again unless we fix it now while we have the opportunity. And it seems like we have the ear of our elected officials. Let's take advantage of that. I totally agree. Now, Captain, you've got a, a class coming up, uh, a, a virtual, you know, class for an in-limerian port executive class or manager class coming up virtually on March 16th. But I am really interested in taking, and I hope I get an invitation to attend your Inland Marine um, terminal operator class that you're having, uh, I think it's in September, right? Yes, it's in Memphis. It's at the it's it's actually at the, the back end of uh, after your uh, annual meeting is your annual meeting is done uh, at the end of September. It'll be in Memphis and the University of Memphis is our sponsor. We'll be doing an Inland Marine terminal operator program there, as well as the uh, both a coastal and inland uh, management program online. It's four days, four hours. Uh, and while I'm not a big fan of online programs, I think in this particular case, you know, there's enough people who are saying, you know, we'd like to at least, you know, do the online portion of it. But the executive portion, as well as the MTO and the, and the Inland Marine Terminal Operator, those will all be done in, per, in, uh, in person, you know, and we have great instructors. I'll be there and some other good faculty that we have there. And uh, of course, you're always invited, Amy. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I really am uh, just so excited to take that class because I know you have one of the best terminal operators teaching that class. And so I'm really interested in learning, you know, what goes into, you know, rate consideration uh, from the terminal operator's perspective, right? We think of a lot of times from the shipper's perspective, what it costs to ship our goods, what it costs to transport our cargo. I can't wait to hear from the terminal operator's perspective of what goes into reconsideration. Yeah, absolutely. And we teach them all the four letter words, doc. What? Yeah, we teach them all the four letter words, doc, pier, boat. <laughs> okay, nice. Anyway, I think we've reached the end of our course here uh, and our producer is telling us that we're uh, running out of time. So. Uh, as always, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you, Amy, and I look forward to our next conversation. And uh, I think uh, we can start diving in depth a little bit more into some of the regulatory framework, uh, which will be very helpful. And I think for folks, but if anybody has questions at any time, please feel free to contact me or Amy. We're always happy to help. That's what, that's what we do.
24 right. seven, right? 24 seven, 365. We are, we are constantly, you know, working for our members, providing that guidance, those resources, and, and really just encourage you to reach out if there's anything that we can do, any questions that we can answer, any guidance we can offer. I, I can attest to that because how many times have I gotten emails from you in the middle of the night, right? <laughs> or on my way to church, right? And I get this phone call, right? And I'm sitting there going like, oh my. <laughs> yes, Amy. And I always appreciate you always answered. And I can't thank you enough for that. <laughs> I will always answer your call because I know better. <laughs> I know better not to. Anyway, as, as, uh, as we say in Southern Maine, Y'all take care now you're here and we'll look forward to chatting with y'all again in the near future. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you, Amy.